1: hey praise the lord everybody this is pastor chavez back we are back with frontline um today we have a extremely special treat i'm super excited about this um this is something i have looked forward to and we've got something very special in line for this episode um we're still on the subject of servant leadership but we may break off on it a little bit today to um talk about talk with a very special elder in my life a man that I I respect highly and I love very very deeply and that is uh, the one the only bishop brother elder Sam Howard amen brother Howard we are really glad that you are doing this with us amen we hope that uh, you feel comfortable with talking about some of the subjects in servant leadership but uh, brother Howard how are you
2: I'm good. Thank you for the invitation to do this.
1: Yeah, we're, we're really excited about this and we just, I want you to feel comfortable. This is kind of candid, although I will be asking some questions. So just if you interrupt me and input because you feel something, please do it. Um, this is a candid conversation. So we really want to get a lot out. Um, this is a subject I'm really passionate about. Um, and I'm really glad that you are the first one we can talk with about this. Uh, amen so um so if you don't mind maybe just at first tell us a little bit about yourself brother Howard, and um just give us a brief history of your of yourself um growing up we don't have to take too long doing it but um just give us a brief history of you and your ministry places you've been
2: my ministry started in my mid-20s uh i was kind of wayward and really got a hold of God when I was almost 22 years of age, 21, and really got a hold of God, began to feel the call of God to preach within a couple of years, began to pursue after that. And then we ended up, um, after we were married, had our first child, I was helping in our home church with the youth, quiz team, jail ministry, different things around the church, and we had applied to be on the mission field to El Salvador, and my pastor told me it was time to go. Gave me a ninety-day window to get my money finished and raised and get the road, get on the road. And so we did. So you're talking
1: ninety days from the moment that you felt the call to the mission
2: field? No, we were approved. We were waiting for that fictitious date, and um, he found the date for me. He's come to me and he, at a conference, his first conference he hosted and he said you've got 90 days from today to be have your money together and be ready to go
1: from the moment of his confirmation
2: yes <laughs> so 90 days to the day we had raised our last dime we needed to go my goodness
1: now you told me before that a while before that you went to bible college we're at
2: jackson college of ministries and brother tommy crafts church in jackson mississippi that's where i met my wife what years were that 84 85 86 area era of time
1: and i mean are there any names that we might be familiar with that you went that went to bible college there while you were there or
2: um yeah, they'd probably be ashamed if I said their names, though, <laughs> <laughs> that they knew me. It was, our class was probably the best class to ever go through the school. I say that proudly. Yeah. Holy Ghost proudly. Holy Ghost proudly. And um, yeah. many of my friends from there are pastoring today, uh, full-time ministry, a few missionaries. And uh, we've still kind of, a lot of us have stayed in touch over the years. Who Can you say who some of the teachers were? Uh, brother Elton Menard, sister Loretta Bernard, brother David Bernard, even when he was starting to write his books. Um, we had brother Jonathan Urshan, which was a blast, one of the greatest teachers. Wow. Even though he was hard as all get out to, to, uh, study a test for because he never was what he taught. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had, uh, uh had, um, daryl johns for book of acts class life of times we had david reaver for youth ministries uh gordon mallory for a while just some great group of people there was a lot of guest speakers at the time billy cole a lot um uh, wayne huntley wow back in their prime um brother merle ewing different ones like that ad spears That was many great men of god that came through there and taught and preached and
1: Wow. So who would you say would have the biggest effect on your ministry today?
2: From those days?
1: From those days.
2: I would have to say probably Billy Cole. Wow. Why is that? Uh, Back in that time, I think was when he was at his ultimate uh, ministry. Yeah. Just my opinion. He came a lot, and I was able to talk to him one-on-one several times during that time and ask him very important questions about being used of God, the gifts of the Spirit, praying for people. I remember him doing the ministry of laying on of hands. It was incredible that I still exercise that, tell young ministers that today. Just different profound moments with him and then after that year some years later he he was uh, with us a lot when we were in Louisiana and I got to spend personal time with him then
1: yeah so how far from when you um graduated bible college or finished bible college would you say you went into the mission field
2: uh, we left uh, for the mission field in
1: 1989 that you went to El
2: Salvador mm-hmm and when did you go to Bible college?
1: 84, 86, 87. So about two years after Bible college, you went. Um, is there anything, what, what I've been mean, going from Bible college, local ministry uh, all the way to El Salvador. That's a pretty big call. Um,
2: how did you feel
1: that? How did you feel that call?
2: Uh, when I was a kid, I had an uncle that was missionary to Brazil and he'd come home telling me all these stories. He was my favorite uncle if any of my cousins hear this, please forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, even to this day, I'm a lot like him. Yeah. he uh, was my mom's brother. And he always wanted to tease me about taking me back to Brazil on a ship with him in a barrel, which is how you shipped everything back then. <laughs> and so we always tried to figure out how I could stay breathing in a barrel that far as a little boy. He came home one time and, and was talking about Portuguese that he spoke. Yeah. And, uh, he told me he could whistle in Portuguese. I was about six years old, and <laughs> I had him whistle a song in Portuguese, and he whistled, and family still laughs about it to this day that I told him, I said, that sounds just like English. <laughs> 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 Same yeah. thing again, folks. Wow. But uh, anyway, him being on mission field for years and bringing the stories home, plus the church I was raising as a kid had a lot of missionaries through there and from that church. And we would hear their stories, and it just put something in me I wanted to go. When I was at Bible College and graduated, I was voted the most likely to be a missionary. Wow. Wow. Um, Just because you mentioned it real quick, what what church was it that you were raised in as a kid? It was the First Apostolic Church of Tulsa. C.P. Williams was the founder of it, and his son pastored it for a while. And then it was kind of a sad ending. And then my brother started a church in Tulsa in 1981 and I was a part of that he's still my pastor to this day wow so
1: so Elder Howard that's the the pastor there in Tulsa Elder Gary Howard he you told him you felt the call to El Salvador and he prayed about the time and said when he figured that out he said okay you've got 90 days from today
2: I think a lot of it had to do with the fact he was glad to see me go (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm just kidding. He, uh, no, he felt that looking back, you know, over the years, you look back and you realize the hand of God and things. At that moment, I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Um, 90 days. We had a garage sale. We sold a bunch of stuff. How much did you have to raise? What was the goal? I don't remember. It was, from back then, it was a lot of money because we, we were planning on raising all of our money up front Yeah, for the whole time. We was going to be gone. Supposedly 12 months. We ended up being gone about a year and a half. Wow. And uh we tried to raise enough money to fund us every month for a year, and we stretched it out a year and a half. Yeah. So I remember you telling me a
1: story once about um, the 90 days are coming up,
2: and you're short. It got down to the last weekend, and I was short thousands, and I was preaching for Brother Craft and Jackson, and he said, how much do you need to finish your budget? And I told him, he said, oh, we can get that tonight. And I preached and, and, uh, it was probably a very forgettable message. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, they took up an offering for us. And we went back in the office after service, with brother, sister, craft, me and my wife and our baby at that time, our big baby. Yeah. And, uh, we were sitting there talking and they brought the total to brother craft and it was a dollar short. And sister crash said, I'll give a dollar to get you out of here. <laughs> I'll give that last bit. I got it. She got us on the road. Hey, Amen. Who who was the baby?
1: Brother Andrew Howard. And that was Andrew Howard. So you, Sister Howard, and Andrew, little Andrew had a baby headed to Sal El Salvador. Right. Um. And how many days after that did you when you
2: left? It took a few weeks. To consolidate everything we had down yeah. to a small trailer oh my God. to pull behind our vehicle all the way to El Salvador from Jackson, Mississippi. You pulled a trailer from Jackson, Mississippi to El Salvador. Yes, and my redneck roots were showing the whole time. <laughs> I bought, I didn't, I didn't want to spend my money on a trailer, so I bought a customized bed of a pickup truck oh made into a trailer. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord. Uh, we loaded what little bit personal stuff we had a refrigerator a stove uh it was an economy st- i mean a uh, apartment size stove a small one yeah uh washing machine and i had a full and then all of our clothes silverware microwave things like that i had a bronco we had it packed full My and uh, we had the trailer and then i had a full complete print shop with a printing press, all the all the supplies, all the material that goes with that to start a print shop in El Salvador because I had a background in printing. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I know there's a
1: lot of stories that could be told, but we're going to let's jump into El Salvador. What was
2: what was unique about the time you were there? Uh, it was during the height of the war uh when we got to the border the war was so—they had started an offensive the day that we left Jackson for El Salvador. We're talking like a civil war. No, it was a war from—yeah, I guess it could have been a civil war, but it was the communists coming out of Cuba and Nicaragua heading into El Salvador during the Reagan years, and they were trying to topple the governments in Central America, worked their way up to the United States— and by this time, George Bush Sr. was president, and um, the war was raging, and they started uh, an offensive. The communist guerrillas did the week. They had been doing it for several years, but just so happened the week. We head to El Salvador. They they launched an offensive, and in the capital city where we moved, they killed 10,000 people in seven days. My <clears throat> My, my. So when we got to the border, we actually followed Brother Wendrost and his wife, too, uh, down from the United States into uh, Mexico all the way across the border. Um, and we had uh, a lot of trouble getting through the different checkpoints. Guatemala, yeah. they wouldn't let us into Guatemala because uh, they thought we were bringing print equipment to do propaganda. And they held us at the border for a day and wouldn't let us through. And Brother Dross did all he could and couldn't get us through. And my mother-in-law had made us a a whole bag of homemade jelly. And I just had this thought after about a day, I offered the guy that was resisting us uh, a jar of it, opened it up to him, stick his finger in it, dip some out and taste it. he did. And within about two minutes, he was letting me sign the paperwork, and we were gone. And I'd give him all the jelly. <laughs> so you got held I bar- up. I bought my way into Guatemala with jelly. <laughs> you bought your way into Guatemala with a jar of jelly. That's it. What kind of jelly was it? It wouldn't have mattered all of a sudden. She made this good. I don't remember. She had strawberry and peach and oh, everything else. Oh, my word. So they they held you at the border
1: because of Guatemala because they thought you've got Printing equipment, you're going to print propaganda, propaganda against the government. Against the government. Mm-hmm. And so they had. Guatemala held in, was
2: a little bit topsy turvy at that time, too. It wasn't in war, but they had problems. They did have skirmishes at times. It was just the communists trying to stir up trouble.
1: And they thought you were coming in to help yeah. support that and begin that. And so right. you're held at the border, and just the idea hits your head is, you know, this guy might like the jelly. Right. And uh, it turns
2: out he did. i I called the missionary in el salvador make sure they was good to go because the war and and uh he said oh man we're really excited about you coming come on and in the background i'm hearing machine gun fire and bombs going off i said what's that noise in the background he said oh it ain't nothing come on down we're waiting on you (laughs) he told me later they were hiding in their kitchen cabinets because the bombing was so intense by their house oh my goodness so you get through the border, you get into El
1: Salvador. And we got into Guatemala. You got into Guatemala on and your we way couldn't up.
2: Go, they wouldn't let us in the border of El Salvador because the war was too intense. My goodness. How so, long did you wait from there then? Seemed like we were in Guatemala a couple of months with the Drost. Wow. And during that time, I was extremely sick with uh, amoebas. They didn't know what it was. And they confused my records with a guy from the United States who was a Jehovah's Witness missionary, Mormon missionary. His last name was Howard, and he had cancer. Oh, my. We were both blonde-headed and white. Yeah. In the same hospital, and they confused our records. And they did like 30-something x-rays of me and all kinds of tests because they confused our records. Kind of had me worried just a little bit. Yeah. They, and then all it was was amoebas, easy fix with medication.
1: Once they, once they figured it out, but they, oh, wow. So it took you a couple of months in Guatemala. And you finally get into El Salvador, and you guys go
2: to work. What What were the beginnings of that like? What was well when we drove into El Salvador, the border was empty uh, because they just had an attack. And my brother-in-law Bruce Howe met us at the border. He rode with me, and then we put my son and wife in the van with him and his wife and kids, which they were sisters. And he told them, "You follow us, no matter what happens." He told me if somebody tries to block the road, just drive around them. Whatever you got to do. The first, um, road we came to that had a booth for entry into El Salvador, there was bodies laying on the ground. Blood was still running. Things were burning. And you could see the, uh, soldiers running one direction, the communist girls running the other direction through the jungle. Oh my. Um, uh, and that's what we drove into. And as we drove in, within a half a mile, the vehicle come rolling down a mountainside to block the road, and he freaked out and said, "Go, go, go!" And so I drove up on the embankment around the vehicle, and we get going, pulling our trailer with all of our stuff in it, and the van of kids behind us. My goodness, it was a and fun time. Yeah, that I mean, not to mention we got held up in Mexico. Yeah. Oh my! Before and all this, you're getting held up all the way. We all, got held up at gunpoint. At gunpoint in Mexico. Yes, and God miraculously intervened and stopped it from happening. So too long a story to tell, but it was awesome. Wow! Well, we're we're gonna have. We, we need to hear it one day. We're gonna do this again.
1: So, I mean, you're going all around this and. I mean, the central theme of what we're trying to do with this podcast is servant leadership. And you ain't stopping because you are called to go. You are called to go. There's no turning back. Um, if you're called to go, there's nothing that's going to stop you. You're going to get there. Right. And you, I mean, you, you're, you're there. There's no, there, yeah, there is no turning back. And how was the beginnings of finally starting and arriving at the mission field and
2: starting? Um, it was a pretty exhilarating moment for me. All the stuff we endured to get there, all the obstacles, literally in the roads, military, police, robbers, thieves. Um, I never got scared one time. It was just weird. I had the greatest peace I've ever had in my life. And I knew that God didn't send me there for me to get killed. Yeah. That I was there to do a work. And so I just knew whatever happened, he was going to take care of us. No matter how difficult it was. And I didn't even speak Spanish. And so I wouldn't let nobody help me do anything. I wanted to do it myself in Spanish. And they told me that I had six months to be able to preach in Spanish. And I was preaching in Spanish within about five months. And then started teaching Bible college not long after that. And we started the church while we were there. So you started
1: learning enough Spanish to be able to preach in Spanish.
2: Yeah, I, taught, I preached in Spanish within easily within six months. Wow.
1: How many people would you say you saw got the Holy Ghost there while you were in El Salvador? Would you have um, an estimate?
2: In the thousands. I know uh, the first year we were there, uh, the war was intense, but it seemed like it made revival even that much more intense. And uh, each little conference we had— there would be 100, 200, 300 get the Holy Ghost. Uh, general convention was in October, if I remember right. And it's during, if I remember right, everything on that, it was the dry season. Yeah. They have a rainy season, a dry season there. It was the dry season. It was in a large stadium and there was over 30,000 people and it was in the round, uh, one end of like a horseshoe end of the stadium. And, wow. and the final service, I can't remember who was preaching, but they gave the altar call, and we had everybody coming out. on the Holy Ghost. Yeah, um, many of these people had already been going to churches; they'd already been baptized in Jesus' name. They just had not received the Holy Ghost because the gr- work grew so fast. Some people never understood this, but you'd have a thousand get the Holy Ghost on baptized twenty. It's because many of them had already been baptized in Jesus' name. They came from those little country churches yeah. to the conferences because most of the pastors, to be honest with you, weren't trained well. Many of them didn't know how to pray people through the Holy Ghost. They were training them. We was teaching them in two different Bible colleges. Uh But the work grew so rapidly that you had to use guys before they were really ready sometimes yeah. uh, as pastors because it would be their hometown and they would win a family uh, it would kind of exploded into revival, and they just became the pastor. It's just how it happened. And so that night when the altar call was given, there was thousands came to the stadium floor from the stands to get the Holy Ghost. So we lined them up in rows, all the Salvadoran pastors. There was a few missionaries that come in for the meeting, as well as all of us there. And we lined them up in rows where we could pray for them, just walk up down the rows of people praying for them. And they begin to repent. I'll never forget it. As they repented, began to weep and cry. Uh, the people began to move under the anointing. And they were like, bouncing on their feet. And the dust from that stadium floor began to come up as like a cloud. And literally some of them had mud running down their faces from their tears. And, and then uh, all of a sudden, uh, they started... Getting stammering lips, people started talking in tongues, and literally, you could run down the rows of people, touch them on the head, and they would they would start talking in tongues as soon as you touch them. My, and this is all during a time. I mean, during the still- war, they had to be at home before dark. Every service that we held, uh, the first few months we were there, we were under martial law, and they hired a command, and then they shot. Then it changed over to. Um, A verbal command to stop. This is after dark. Yeah. And I think it's between 6 and 6, 6 p.m., 6 a.m. And um, they give a verbal warning, um, I think two or three warnings before they shot after the three months. And then later, it just became a deal. There was just too many attacks at nighttime, so people would do their best to be home before dark. And we'd have church at 3 in the afternoon, and the people worked extremely hard, and they would literally, by the end of service— they would be desperate when we'd have deep moves of God and all yeah. the people praying. They would be running and crying to the buses to to get home before dark. And sometimes some of them didn't make it and they would lay at the base of a tree somewhere all night long and, you know, or hide out somewhere till, till like, you know, till morning so they could get home. Yeah. It's just a way of life. Uh, but that night, as the Holy Ghost fell in that stadium, um, on that, that evening, it was that afternoon. Uh, I'm thinking, right about that time was when they relaxed all the laws. Yeah, uh, on that it was right during that time frame, and uh, the Holy Ghost when it fell in that stadium, you could hear why it was the sound of a rushing mighty wind because there was over two thousand people who received the Holy Ghost within a matter of ten fifteen minutes. My, and there was one elderly man that worked on the farm, just a poor, poor man, didn't even know how to say hello in English. And they come and got me. Come here, come here. Went over there and he was speaking. He was talking in tongues in perfect English. My. it was amazing. Yeah. There was another man laying there on a, street, on a sheet. It was very reminiscent of biblical stories. That his friends had brought him in their prayers in a coma, had been that way for a long time, just like vegetative state. And nobody even prayed with him while the Holy Ghost fell, People were worshiping and stuff. He began to move and what was so over he, he actually stood up and carried his bed home with him. My goodness. My Lord. Out of those 21, 2,100 received the Holy Ghost out of those 2,100, they only baptized 36. So most of those people had already been around Pentecost, had already been praying, yeah, had been baptized in Jesus name. So sometimes the numbers sounded skewed, but they weren't. Yeah. Uh, it's just that they pushed a lot for the conferences where people got the Holy Ghost. For people to get the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. They've so been baptized. In a year's time, I would say I saw, I'm going to guess over 4,000 receive the Holy Ghost in, in a year's time. Oh, my goodness. At least that many.
1: And the miracles. The miracles
2: that uh, you saw. The miracles for us personally and other people was unbelievable. It built my faith. When I came back to the States and all the years I evangelized and assisted different ones and pastored. Uh, my faith—I'm never since then. I've never been satisfied just for your normal stuff. Yeah, you know, just it has to be so supernatural. It, it, if you were to
1: talk about for yourself personally, so the miracles that you've seen for yourself personally, which one would stand out the most in your mind?
2: In El Salvador, yeah. Um, man, there were so many big ones. Uh, I'll mention two. One of them was. We went to the demilitarized zone, me and my brother-in-law, and nobody had ever been, had not been there since the war started. And many of those people had never seen a white man. Yeah. And so we came in there, and they were supposed to meet us with horses. And uh, they didn't show up, so we had to hike it. And we went down these mountain trails and crossed the river on a little huck Finn raft and pulled ourselves across with a rope and preached in this deal. And my brother-in-law got ahead of me going up the mountain to the church. And it was near the border of uh, Nicaragua yeah. and Honduras, near uh, somewhere in that little area there. Very rough, it was. Uh, that's the mountains where the guerrilla is headquartered at. Oh, my. So there's no military anywhere near there. And when I, uh, a guy with a mule cut me off on the mountain trail and wouldn't let me past him and some other guys. So my brother-in-law and the other preachers got ahead and left me. So when I finally got up there, the church had already started, and uh, they had graffiti on the building. I have a picture of it. The F-E-M-E-L-A-N-E was the name of their their letters of their communist group. And they were sitting around the front of the church and just stared at me, uh, almost defying me to walk in there. And I just said, in Jesus' name, walked right through the middle of them, walked in there in the church. The, I, he, there was a group of guerrillas outside the church. Yes, there to stop you. They were just there. They were just there. It's not. It's just an intimidation tactic. I'd done nothing to them, so there wasn't no reason for them to do anything. Yeah. We rubbed shoulders with them often, so it wasn't like we didn't – not with that group specifically. But yeah. They They weren't, back then, attacking Americans yeah. per se. I mean, they would kidnap you probably and take you for ransom, but um, – or kill you and just leave you. But I I went in the church, and it was dirt, floor – and I remember trying to pray and I was breathing so hard from climbing a mountain that I couldn't concentrate and water was dripping off my, from my elbows through my shirt. And, uh, I had to kneel in the dirt and I had mud on my pants from the sweat right. and then I had to stand up and preach because they were waiting on me and, uh, powerful church people. My Spanish was terrible. I thought. And, uh, when I'd get through preaching, I'd go to a little bitty country church and preaching and Tim would get the Holy Ghost. Like, I don't even know how that happened. My It. But and during that time a guy held me a gun, pulled a gun on me, yeah, and was trying to kidnap me. And uh I told him no, he wanted me to go with him. I told him no and he pointed the gun at me and I just said in Jesus' name and his gun misfired and he pulled the trigger multiple times, it misfired every time I turned and walked off, walked back to the church. Okay. <laughs> Hold on. You, you you got held at gunpoint. Yes. On your way there? After we were there, I was taking pictures of the church and just kind of backed up in the edge of the jungle area and was taking pictures. And a guy got my attention the way they do. They make a little noise in El Salvador. Yeah. And I turned around. He was standing there at gunpoint wanting me to go with him. He, he held wanted, you
1: at gunpoint wanting you to go with him. Yeah. Threatening him. He was him. On one of the
2: communist guerrillas.
1: One of the communist guerrillas. Yes. And he pulled the trigger. Uh, and when
2: I told him no and turned around to walk off, he pulled the trigger. And, uh, I heard him rack his gun again and I heard it snap and I just kept saying Jesus name. I kept calling on Jesus and just kept walking. And he just left. You never looked back. He took off. I have he- no idea what happened to him. I didn't, I didn't go up looking for him. I know that much. <laughs> and when I walked back out to where the vehicle was, my bronco was there. And my brother said, we got to go on the next place. And we got in the vehicle. He looked at me and said, why are you so white? Yeah. I said, you're not going to believe what just happened. My. It was Just another day in the life of El Salvador during that time frame. My
1: goodness. Did, while you were there, I mean, any other missionaries that were there with you or anything like that, I mean, did anybody get killed while you were there?
2: Nobody that I knew personally. Uh Yeah. You know, nobody that we knew. It was just constant attacks. Every day, bombs blowing up, gunfire. It was every single day you just lived with it. What was funny was we'd send the women home from church, and we would come later, and we'd have to ride with our head hanging out the window, so you wouldn't drive into the middle of gunfire. You had to hear where it was at. Oh, my. I had a few little funny scenarios with that.
1: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um. And you said you were in El Salvador for a year and a half, Mm -hmm. about a year and a half. My Lord. So
2: what, what brought you back to the States? Well, our money started getting low. I wanted to apply to be a full-time missionary. I was on the aim program. Then I was one of the first aimers they ever had. And, um, I was tentatively approved. I just had to go through the process and, uh, a couple weeks before we left, uh, my brother, I said, will not you write a letter? Let me send a letter to a few pastors because I was going to preach a few months before I decided what I was going to do next, and he sent one. Uh, we would met Brother Ewing some years before, and I went to school. with His daughter um, knew him very, very distant, very yeah. barely. He didn't even remember me hardly. Yeah. Um, anyway. He found out I was coming home from the States. He'd come down there and preached. And, of course, I made friends. Everybody came down there. And he asked that I come and preach for him on New Year's Eve, which was a big deal for them. And I did. And uh, on the way there, we were crossing the Chafalai Basin in in Louisiana of Lafayette. And I just felt the Holy Ghost. I told my wife, I said, he's going to offer us a job to assist him. She said, there's no way. I said, I'm telling you, he will. We preached for him three services. The last night he had been fasting the whole time. And the last night he um asked me to go in the office and then offer me a position assisting him. And so I told him, Let me pray about it, but already that was just to say that just to say it. Yeah. And then we we uh, called him back, told him we'd be glad to be there to help him. We we were with him five years.
1: You were with Brother Ewing. Brother Ewing. Mhm. So um We'll talk about that in a second. I, I wanna ask you a question because you mentioned Brother Bruce Howell. That's your brother in law. Correct. And my understanding, I mean, Brother Bruce Howell is seen I mean, he, he's one of the most powerful missionaries to walk the face of the planet. I mean I, I I don't know if that's an overstatement or understatement, but I've just heard some amazing stories and you know him personally and I just would love to ask how many people would you say that? I mean, the brother Bruce. How how much would you think that or say that he's maybe received, seen received the Holy Ghost?
2: I actually asked him that recently. How I many he's personally seen received the baptism of the Holy Ghost? Because El Salvador was the epicenter of revival yeah. in the '80s and probably even into the mid '90s. That's worldwide. Yeah, and then Ethiopia happened not long after that. In the 90s, but um, his trips to Ethiopia and then as global mission director for the United Pentecostal Church and then uh, El Salvador and other places, he told me he's seen personally over half a million people receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Over half a million people. And I believe, I don't have any proof of this, but outside of everything we know, Chinese, in China, maybe there's somebody that's seen more. But I don't know of another man that's ever lived, and I know that's a huge statement, but I don't know anybody that's ever seen that many people personally receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Over half a million. My and goodness. he he came into church as a 14-year-old teenager. Somebody knocking on his door to ride the bus to church, and he came to church as a bus kid. He
1: came to church at 14 years old. As a bus kid, because someone knocked on his door,
2: and I think he's the greatest missionary in modern times. My goodness,
1: a bus kid, or I, one of the greatest, a bus kid. Bus ministry works. It works. I mean, it it it. Bus ministry, knock on the doors, bus kid. Don't ever underestimate whose door you're going to knock on. I mean, over half a million people seen receive the Holy Ghost under his ministry that he 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 may have personally been a part of and seen get the Holy Ghost and possibly even hundreds of thousands more under his ministry, other missionaries that he's mentored or worked with that have gotten the Holy Ghost because of his influence.
2: Absolutely.
1: Um. And wow, I mean, that, I don't even know how to fathom that feeling of thinking about uh, God allowing me to be a part of just a few getting the Holy Ghost and thinking hundreds of thousands under brother Bruce Howell, my my goodness, um, and he's a and he was a bus kid. He yes. was a bus kid that somebody knocked on his door. Where was that at?
2: Uh, it was in, I think, Heron, Illinois, up near Southern Illinois, near Carbondale, Illinois area. We've been talking for a few days, brother Howard, and you have
1: told me about a list of family. I don't know if it's family um, that you know came out under, you know, in in ministry from from family members of you or elders or grandfathers or, you know, uncles or brothers or sisters. I mean, and that list is huge. Mm-hmm. That list is huge. If, if, if you were to give a, a rough estimate of what you think the number is, cause you're, you're working on a project, but of what you think that that number is going to be close to, what would that be? What would you say?
2: Well, so my grandfather, my mother's parents got mm-hmm. in church and then my parents were in church now we are, and then our kids, and then grandkids, so we're my grand- our grandkids are fifth generation um and so I started doing a ministry family tree, yeah, out from under my grandparents, who by the way was not a minister, he was a sharecropper in Oklahoma, poor people and but he raised he had sixteen kids. Mm-hmm. Out of those sixty-nine boys, seven girls, and four of the boys became preachers, and then their offspring, and then my aunts, many of their kids and grandkids and great-grandkids have become ministers, and I'm doing a, I'm doing a uh, family tree of ministers, and it's well over a hundred and growing. The more I just had a, a cousin; he's on the mission field in, in Mexico. And he sent me a list it's it 's unbelievable how many preachers have come out from under his ministry. Wow, and it just keeps on going and then how many come out from under those ministers and it just, the tree just keeps branching out branching yeah. out so i haven 't even compiled the list lately but it's it 's adding up a lot wow. and we I'm, wow it's
1: and and coming out from someone who's not the ministry starting from someone who is not in the ministry, just someone who became a faithful saint in the church,
2: right, My dad prayed through. James Kilgore kind of led him to church to his dad, C.P. Kilgore in Skytook, Oklahoma. And um, just on my dad, my dad was not a preacher. Between me and my brother, my my other brother wasn't a preacher, but he won a lot of people. Yeah. He was a principal, school principal for years, teacher. And just the influence of that, uh, ministers come out from under my, my brother, and myself and others it's it's uh over 50 and climbing wow so i mean there's there's so much
1: we can go over and i just kind of want to stay i got a lot going through my head to ask you right now but we're gonna have to do two or three episodes <laughs> of this because really you know brother howard for me personally you're such an extraordinary man and you have a voice that needs people need to see they need to hear what you've done they need to hear your story of of getting into ministry of the miraculous things that you've seen in my personal opinion your 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 influence is is huge in my personal life um in my family and me and my wife's your your influence and fingerprints are are all around our ministry and i believe your voice and the stories you have to tell um they need to be heard they desperately need to be heard especially in the upcoming young ministry, they need to hear the sacrifice that men like you made to become what you are and and to be used of God the way that people need to be used of God in our day. Um, I feel like there's a lot, personally, I feel like there's a lot missing. There's a lot missing and um, your story needs to get out. And um, man, if it was my opinion, if it was any of my authority, You'd be teaching ministry classes all over the country in every meeting that need that, that that comes together because they just need to hear about these things and what you sacrificed for ministry, what you sacrificed to get to El Salvador. And I mean you talked about a few of these amazing things that happened, but and we hear your story, but there's there's more to it. There's a deeper part to it because Sister Howard was with you in El Salvador, and how old was Andrew?
2: He just turned a year old when we got there,
1: and so he was a year old with you in a war zone, and you had a baby and so the miracle's bigger than just you know you getting held up and God, God at gunpoint and God saving you but because it it your 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 wife and and Andrew at one years old were there. And God was taking care of them and providing for them all along with you, that you were there. And these kind of things just need to be heard. That personal sacrifice and relying on God to say, I'm here doing your work. I'm here doing your work. And God, you're going to have to take care of me and my kid and my wife. Um, people need to hear it. And um, it's such an amazing thing. And so now I'm in mean, skipping forward. You're 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 assisting, you're assisting an icon of Pentecost. You are assisting an icon of Pentecost and Brother Merle Ewing, and you were there. You said for five years.
2: Five years, almost five years. What was that like? My, it was. Um, I didn't know him as close up as a lot of Pentecostals did at that time. At that time, I knew he was well known. I'd heard him preach, I admired his ministry at a distance. Um, but I hadn't I didn't know the impact he had had in all the youth camps and camp meetings all over the country for decades. Yeah. Um and to be there with him, he was only uh fifty fifty years old when I went to assist him, but I thought he was about eighty. So now
1: when we say you went to go when you say you went to go assist him, you were his you were this assistant. Yes. You were the assistant pastor or assistant to the pastor. Right. There you became very close. So it wasn't like you were just another He had a
2: full time secretary and he had me and that was it. My what how'd that impact you? Uh it was hugely impacting. I saw a side of ministry that I didn't know. Uh, I've never seen a more compassionate man. Never seen a man that If you could say he had no guile in him, I don't think he did. Yeah, Uh, Somebody might differ with me on that, but um, I've seen him go from laughing over a crazy joke he told to being in deep intercessory prayer within 60 seconds. Because of a crisis, that just happened. And uh, it's because he didn't have to wade through all the garbage to get that deep in the spirit. Wow. Now, our...
1: You told me the story. Our podcast, what we're doing right now, we're talking about servant leadership. And you told me the story that has really got into my head. Um, and I just, if you can, if you don't mind telling this again, because I want anybody that would, just to think about the depth of this. And anybody that's striving in ministry, everybody, anybody that just thinks, I mean, ministry is about themselves. You told me something about Brother Ewing, about how he used to get up on the pulpit and he would just maybe talk about his dreams,
2: yeah, I was with him just a few months, and he was a dreamer, and I heard him you know i want I want us to do this," and he would go into this grandiose way that he had of talking about things and and tell about his dreams, what he want to do. It was probably six months of being over there with him, and he never did any of it he used to bother me a little bit, being a young buck, you know, a lot of goals and ambition I had and to just see it languish and nothing come of it. Yeah. And I just noticed people in the church just kinda of took it with a grain of salt and nothing was ever done. So one night he was just talking and dreaming in the pulpit and I always had a notepad with me and I started taking notes, everything he said, wrote it down, remembered most of it. So, got in the office I was new to the computer. I used typewriter mostly yeah, back in those days. <laughs> and uh, I had a guy in the church fix me up with a computer. And so I started typing up what he had dreamed and uh, laid out into a program, did all the details that needed to be done to make it happen. And I had it all laid out on paper, and I took it and I laid it on his desk. He wasn't there, and when he came by, he, he called me to come down to his office. And he said, Bubba what is this And and I said well this is what you talked about Sunday night at church I just laid it out on paper And this is how we can make it happen And he cried like he always did And I said any changes you want to make Just tell me and I'll fix it So he made a few little changes And, and uh, I gave it to him And he presented it to the church And this is how we're going to do it And this is who's doing it And this is what we need And so I headed it up And we made it happen and I told him it just kind of dawned on me while I was there with him. I said I realized he's a dreamer. He wasn't a doer. He was a dreamer. Yeah. And there's other guys that are doers. There's other guys that have the the nuts and bolts of a project. And he was the one that conceived the idea. And so I just told him, I said, "Brother, you dream, and I'll fulfill your dreams." So you you sat
1: there and put yourself, your own ambitions, your own thoughts of how of what you wanted to get done aside, and you
2: said, "Brother Ewing." I'm here to make your dreams happen. Absolutely. And I i don't think you ever one time told the church it was me that did it. There's no recognition with it. No, not really, but the church knew. Yeah. The church people knew. They loved me to death. I loved them. Uh, and I just, you know, when you, when you serve the kingdom of God for him, for mm-hmm. the kingdom of God, uh, it's not about you. And I learned that uh, if I did what I could, In those times that later on, God will fulfill my dreams. And he did. Yeah. And he is. And this is, in my opinion, something that just,
1: I mean, we've, I feel like in in some places it's missing. And that is just sometimes men that'll not think about themselves, even in their own local church, not think about themselves and instead say, you know, pastor, I'm I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve. I'm here. It's not about me. It's about the mission of God. It's about growing our church. And uh, I, I want to serve And What are your dreams, Pastor Al?
2: I'm here to work. I'm here to work and fulfill that. Servanthood is the biggest element missing, I think, today in many young ministers. They want a pulpit more than they want to do the grunt work and behind the scenes. And once they pastor, they're going to find out that that preaching's about less than ten percent, and all the grunt work and behind the scenes work is ninety percent or more and If they don't know how to do all that other stuff, they better hope and pray they get a church with good money and able to hire full staff to support them yeah, because if they don't they're never going to do a whole lot, yeah so and here's a here's a
1: big question i don 't know if you'll fully be able to answer this all at once in 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 one thing but if if you were to go and look back i mean i want to put you on the an uncomfortable spot but how how old are you now Hmm. 62 (laughs) for a few days (laughs) he's 62 going on 63 if you were to go back and look over your life of sacrifice brother howard um what are can you can you put a finger on some of them sacrifices And just briefly, I mean, just briefly go over it. I mean, I know, I know there's a lot home homes, you know, having, having your own home, buying homes. But if you would go to just, just put a finger on some things that, you know, were sacrifices. You can now say at 62 going on 63, um, and say, you know, these, we gave up these things and God blessed our ministry. And there's no, I don't regret it.
2: If I had to do it all over again, I don't know if I would change anything Yeah. except maybe my kids' education. We might could have. I just hated being away from my family and traveling when I evangelized for years. So I kept them with me in an RV. We lived in an RV for 11 years of their life, uh, evangelizing, traveling. And even one time I pastored the church for three and a half years, it was in terrible condition financially. And, and we sacrificed to live in the RV the whole time we were there just to get the church out of debt and to get a new building, which we was able to accomplish. Three and a half years. Hindsight, looking back on that, I kind of wish we had rented a building, I mean, a, a house or something during that time. It was in the Bay Area, very expensive. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of money. All the money that we were getting, I was putting into the church to pay all the horrific bills they had before I got there. Yeah. And and when I left there, well, the church was debt-free. Their bills went from tens of thousands of dollars a month to about $2,800 a month. Wow. And God God blessed it. I could have stayed and reaped the benefit of all that, but I just felt like God used me as a bridge for that church to get them through that time. and. Turn it over to another man. And then, um, when we were in Mississippi, we took a tiny group and God gave us tremendous revival there. And He blessed us. We had a nice place. Um, we were there six years. Yeah. And I still have great memories of that place. I've been back recently and preached there again. Um, so, I mean, a lot of water's been on the bridge. Yeah. And so, then just, Different places. Um I've always wished my wife had a nice home. Um uh, but she's not been hard to work with. Yeah. Sister Howard's amazing. She's been she's been willing to do whatever it took to make it happen. Sister Howard. Stay behind the scenes. Didn't want to be seen, didn't want to be heard. She's still that way. Even if I push her, she gets mad at me. <laughs> she needs to pray through. <laughs> sister howard is amazing it's it's never just a sacrifice
1: of the man, but it's 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 a sacrifice of a family so i mean really in reality I mean I think part of what you're saying is um I mean, the sacrifices are immeasurable
2: you can't number them and say one sacrifice is more than the other you know what i I used to say I wished I could tell people i'd pastored the same church for thirty years i've pastored four churches yeah. here in the states, one in El salvador um I don't regret it. You know, and I even had some preachers make comments one time I needed to plant my feet and stay there. And it bothered me for a long time. I always thought of Brother Bagland, Brother Ken Bagland, he pastored thirteen churches. He told me I had his mantle. I told him he could keep it. Um he laughed about it. <laughs> yeah. Um but uh you know what, I don't I don't think I would do it any different than I have other than maybe a few little minor changes. Yeah. But man, the miracles the victories, the healings, the financial blessings, the, the people that's prayed through the dozens of ministers now that have come from our efforts. I wouldn't change it for nothing in the world. Wow. If, uh, if you were
1: to put yourself a definition of servant leadership, because this is something that I've, uh, again, I'm delving into studying this and talking about it, um, and, and just putting a word out on what this is because I personally feel like it's what's missing in a lot of, uh, in, in ministry of understanding what the difference between servant leadership and actual leadership is. Um, but servant leadership is on a whole different level. If you were to look at it and say, here's what I believe it is, here's what servant leadership is to me.
2: What is that, Brother Howard? What's that? Servant leadership is leading by example. To be a servant leader, um, those two words break them apart. Servant. What is a servant? Somebody that waits on others. Serves other people. What is a leader? Somebody leading people. So if I want people to be servant leaders, I have to be that first. I lead by example. Like um, the church is dirty. Me and my wife cleaned it. If the grass needed to be mowed, me and my boys did it. If the uh, uh, room needed to be painted, we painted it. If um, we had a dinner, we had to put it together and make it happen. We served the food and we ate last. If there was there's times that we literally had to go eat somewhere when we got through serving people because there was nothing left. Uh, you know, in the beginning stages of some of the places we've pastured, they were poor as Job's turkey when we got there. <laughs> And uh, some of them are so broke, they couldn't even pay attention. (laughs) And uh, but uh, (laughs) I'm being a little funny about that. But it is true. You you don't think about yourself. You think of others. And the kingdom of God is about serving others, not about ourselves. because God's one that keeps the records, not not mankind. I know down here um, it's kind of a, a deal where a lot of guys want a name and a platform and notoriety and all that. Uh, and chances are pretty high they're probably not going to preach for me. Uh, because I want somebody that's paying the dues, so to speak. Um, I don't know how to explain it without going into a lot of detail. Yeah. But servant leadership is what's needed in the church. I want, I want young ministers to know that you, I just had some preach a week ago, Sunday night. And they did a great job, but I told them yesterday in the meeting, if you're going to be used going forward, you're going to be here helping at the church, doing yard work. You're going to be here doing stuff behind the scenes, and you're going to be here doing things that can be done. You're going to prove yourself by teaching Bible studies and winning the soul. I'll let you preach on occasion, but only if you're doing those things I just said. Yeah. And I'm going to keep records because I want them accountable. Yeah. You, you made this statement for me it's big and some may
1: see it just it, it's big especially because of my military history um that sometimes you didn't eat you went out or you went out to eat somewhere else because the food as you were serving everybody it ran out and that is it, it that kind of thing speaks volumes in my book and in my head um my service time leaders eat last you, your
2: your men your soldiers ate before you ate so that just jogged my memory i read a book and i met this guy who was in the military and he had uh his leg uh blown off in iraq and he was the first soldier to ever go back into combat after that kind of injury mm-hmm. it was a, and he fought hard to get back to that point and i got his book and signature and all that he made a statement um he was one of the greatest leaders I actually had a meeting about him. How could you lead your men so effectively? And uh he he said, I heard him say it. He said, my men never saw me wake up and never saw me go to bed. He said, I got up before they did, and I went to bed before they did. If we went out on patrol, I'd have led the patrol. I didn't leave from behind. And he said, if there was a problem, I took care of it. And he said, I told them over and over. You know, this is how you lead. Yeah, and he said, "I led from the front, not from the back." That, that is a.
1: It's just such a powerful thing, even in, especially must especially in the church. It's mean, such a powerful thing, and eventually, leaders or whatever you want to call them in the church begin to see that, you know, my pastor or the ministry here,
2: they they're not just sayers they're doers so who i learned that from was my own pastor Brother gary howard and he's my brother he's a lot older than me as everybody can tell by looking <laughs> um but he was more like a dad second dad to me and he's been my pastor still is and i watched him start a church at 20 years of age him and his wife live in the storefront uh, with a bed and a single light bulb hanging down the room and scorpions falling on their bed and um, next door to that old storefront, in that little town was a guy in an iron lung had polio. I remember that 1969. Wow. And, um, he dug that church out of nothing, built it up. He was there, I think seven years he left there. But while he was there, he, he did some odd jobs. He ran a school bus for a while. He did, um, a little work here and there, but he, I remember having to work on all his cars cause they'd break yeah. down all the time. didn't no money. And, uh, uh, him chopping wood through the wintertime, selling ricks of wood for people, uh, deer hunting, not for leisure, but to eat, killing rabbits, squirrels to eat, growing a garden, canning food yeah, for hours on end, picking blackberries, corn, I mean, this you is name a, it. This is for the purpose of building a church. He's not You're hunting right. to, he because built I'm on a church pastime. And built a building with his own hands, him and my uncle that used to be a missionary in Brazil. And, uh, church is still going. Matter of fact, he preached there last night. I saw pictures that they sent me. He was preached, he preached there last night and he preached 15 minutes. And the Holy Ghost fell and took over. And, and the young man he prayed through way back then, his sister prayed through last night. We're talking 1960, probably 1970 when that young man prayed through, maybe wow. 71. And his sister prayed through last night after all these years. Wow. I mean, this is, this
1: is a concept hardly, heard of i mean he he said he hunted planted
2: a church growing it he didn't hunt to get away he we hunted, hunted later food. on you know just for the sport he yeah, loved hunting but back then the hunting was uh honest to god out of necessity at times to feed his family what and then from there where was what was the next church he started church in oklahoma city that was a little town in Beggs where he was at. started at south of Tulsa, about 25 miles. Then he went to Oklahoma City for a while, pastor, started a church. It blew up in revival. And then Brother Titus McDonald, pastor there, turned, uh, merged the churches together. And then my brother became pastor. And he stayed there a few years, and then he traveled for a year or so. And then he came to Tulsa and started a church. And he's been there ever since. My. But I watched him sacrifice. He lived in a shack. I mean, literally, you could put your hand through cracks in a wall and it leaned a little bit of an angle. Then they moved into a mobile home, and then before he left, they bought a brand-new house, which was like a massive deal for our family when that happened. Yeah. Um And then over the years, he's sold houses and put the money into the building and yeah. gave and gave and gave. And, and every time there was a work day, he led the work. Every time there was a dinner, they served. Every time the building had to be— remodeled or fixed or built or whatever he was leading it even up until just in the last few years he's he's always I remember uh, people wanting him to eat he wouldn't eat till everybody had eaten and yeah. uh, it wasn't until he got older that he would finally sit down and let them bring his food to him and not be the one standing up there him and his wife who never ever you never heard a word out of her except behind the scenes working uh, that's just the way they were and they, they, they led by example. Absolutely. they. I assisted him for two years in 2002 and 2003. He wanted to help him start some daughter works and work with his young ministers. And he had quite a few and he said, let's just sort them out. The ones that's got it will come to the top. We developed a program of accountability for them. If they didn't work, they didn't get in the pulpit. We did tent revivals and things that I led for him and, I wouldn't let them preach or lead a service unless they helped set up and tear down and spent the night watching all that kind of stuff. Um, they had to pray so much and fast so much and help run the church so much. It was kind of a, d- a boot camp for them.
1: My, what? It, <laughs> it's amazing. I just, and I've, I've had the opportunity a few times to be around, uh, elder Howard. And it, it just, the church that he's built is just phenomenally powerful and he is just he is just a man that makes you better being around him you know and it, it's really inspires you to be around you and him it just for me it's personally beyond inspirational it's it's beyond words if anybody ever gets a chance if you ever get a chance to be around brother sam howard or alder gary howard you you need to try and need to listen to these these two men pray because they're, they're inspirational and, um, they're con- the concept of servant leadership. For me, it's what's helped me in California city. Um, just that, that element of sacrifice is such a big deal. Uh, servant leadership is such a huge thing. And I feel like it's just missing in so many. It's just missing in so many. Um, how to, how to lead from serving not just how to lead but how to lead from the point of serving how can i serve you eating last if they're out there working you're out there working in fact you're out there working before they're out there working um it's such a big deal and um i I feel like even this this few minutes we're coming up on an hour now and remember the Howard, we have just scratched the surface with some things i know you can teach and you can show us um and we're just beginning this podcast. We really are just beginning this podcast. And I, I'm really hoping that we can delve into a few concepts with you eventually and really just dig into on some things that you feel like are minis- missing in young ministers today. Because I know you, there are specific things you look for in ministers that you bring to your church here in Ventura. I was just with them uh, on Sunday, and that's just this last yesterday as far as recording this podcast, but I was with you when I evangelized for, for five years or, I don't know, four years, or however long I was. I can't remember now. But in comparison, you were one of the first revivals that I preached, and that was maybe six years ago. I think six, six and a half years ago I was with you the first time in comparison to where the church is at now, and it's night and day. It's so powerfully grown being prayer warriors, worshipers. They get deep into the spirit. They serve. They love God. And the men that you have just grown, it's just unbelievable. It is amazing to see how this church in Ventura has grown and the house is filling up. And Sunday morning, people just kept walking in. I mean, maybe you wanted some of them there earlier.
2: (laughs) A lot of them were visitors. That was nice.
1: It it was just, it was just unbelievable. It was unbelievable to see. It was, when my wife and I were just totally blessed to see what was going on and the way that the power of God just moved and they took over. And you can just tell there's a submission factor that's going on in this church. Um, that is unbelievable. Um, and I mean, we're going to, we're going to close brother Howard, but I just, is there anything you'd like to say and, and just put out for people to hear? Um, in regards to the topic, servant leadership, is there anything you can think of that you could say? We're going to talk to Brother Howard again. Um, we are, because there's some things that have popped in my mind that I'd like him to expound on. But just as a teaser for this introduction to him, Brother Howard, and is there anything you'd like to say, servant leadership, that you could just say, dive into this subject?
2: Uh, I would say with servant leadership that if you want to be a user of God, you got to be willing to be put on the potter's wheel and mashed mm-hmm. down multiple times. Yeah. And remolded and reshaped the way he wants you because we have an image and idea of what we think is the ultimate minister, yeah, the ultimate evangelist, the ultimate whatever, and it's not always what his is. Yeah. For us, and so when we when we try to manipulate god's will to us be what we think we should be we're in we're on the wrong track yeah we've got to be able to do it his way yeah and i think that the key is is being a servant and in time god will lift you up my if you if you look at it as i'm building a resume or i'm i'm doing this so i can talk about what i've done that's the wrong thing if you're if you're building a resume and said well i I'd done this for X amount of time, and I'd done that. I didn't look at it when I went into it. I never dreamed I would have, looking back, all the places I've been and things that I've done, I didn't go into it that way. Yeah. I did it as the doors open, as God's will unfolded. And I think a lot of guys have an agenda. Yeah. You can't have an agenda-driven ministry. No. You have to have a servant-driven ministry. And when you do it that way, then as Elder Morton preached and taught all over this country, just let it unfold. Yeah, uh, it unfolds when you let God lead it and direct it. What a powerful statement! You need to have a servant-led ministry. If you want to be used to God, that's what you have to do. Or you can be, um, you know, lifted up out of your own abilities, or somebody promoting you and pumping you up. Yeah. But when push comes to shove, who do you want there with you? You want the guy that had his leg blown off in Iraq. Yeah, That came back. He made a statement, I won't turn back. I won't. Mm. And no matter what he had to go through, when he got his leg blown off and almost committed suicide at home, depression hit him. Uh, he actually wrote a letter to his wife right before the accident and told him no matter what happens, I won't turn back. And he was at the point of suicide, hooked on drug, prescription drugs and alcohol when he. I heard the mailman pull up, and he hobbled up on his crutches and hobbled out to the mailbox. Yeah. This is it during his recovery before he went through uh, rehab. He wouldn't go to rehab. He just wanted to die. Yeah. And uh he found his letter had just got there to his wife, and she was at work, and he read his own letter where he said, I won't turn back. My. And he poured his drink out, flushed the pills on the toilet. Called the officer and told him I'm ready for rehab and never look back. Wow! When you go into this, just make up your mind you ain't looking back. You have no agenda other than the will of God. Wow! I won't turn back. You're going to go in.
1: I won't turn back. There's no agenda. I'm doing what God wants me to do, and I'm not trying
2: to mold it myself. I'm letting God mold it. Amen. No matter how hard it gets, you just have to push on through it. Yeah. Yeah, when when your baby's crying because they're hungry, because you let literally out of food, and you're on the mission field, you still do it. My, just do what you got to do, Watch and then God you get provide. to see a miracle. Yeah, but if you don't do that, you don't see the miracle. My,
1: my, thank you, brother Howard. I love and appreciate you very much. Thank you so much for this. Thank you for having me. Love you all much. I hope. I hope we can do this. I'd like to do this again at some point and dive into some other concepts singularly and just, and cut you loose and let you say what you feel elder. Say what you feel. <laughs> Love you. Hey, keep up with us. Um, uh, uh, follow this. Listen to this again. He, he, he gave some nuggets I think that are in there that I'm going to think about and pray about personally. Then God, am I doing what your will? Am I on your wheel still? Am I on the potter's wheel? That's what we all need. I want to be reshaped and I want to be molded. Um, Thank you all so much for listening. God bless you.